If you're a parent, you've probably noticed the world is moving pretty fast and its ideas are moving right along with it. And if you're like me, you might not be too happy about some of those ideas, especially when you realize they're being forced on our kids at an extremely young age. So what can we do about that? That's an important question given that we as parents are ultimately responsible for raising our children. Talking to our little ones is a great place to start and reading to them is a great way to promote discussion. That brings me to a vital resource I want you to be aware of. It's a picture book for readers aged 4 through 9, which introduces the topic of compelled speech to children. Ollie Adamson's Strawberries Are Red, a story about compelled speech, gently introduces this topic and is sure to encourage great discussion between you and your little one. Freedom of speech is essential, and our children should be made aware of this. This book is available on Amazon, and I encourage you to order your copy today. We owe it to our kids. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Clean Libertarian Podcast. How's your week going? How are you guys doing out there? Uh, for me, it's been a pretty interesting week, and it was interesting because I did something way outside of my character. Um, you know, I had, I put in my two weeks at at my uh, you know former employer, and I walked out mid shift. You know, I made it about a week into that two week notice, and just had enough. Handed over my keys and said, you know, f this place, I'm I'm out of here, and uh, it was liberating. I'll tell you that, like almost. Well, instantly in the moment, like I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh my God, calling the wife and everything else. I called the sponsor. I called, you know, all my people in recovery. And eventually we got, you know, I got calmed down. But man, I I, I just feel stress free. I feel so much better. Um, this next gig I'm going to offers a lot of autonomy. Uh, it's going to allow me to do the job at hand. And it's also still, you know, working with addicts in recovery. And so, you know, it's it's checking a lot of boxes for me. So I'm really hopeful for the future. And, um, you know, on to a new chapter, right? On to a new thing. But, um, man, I, I have a really great episode lined up for you guys for this upcoming week. This is my buddy Red from Twitter. Um, Red is someone who spent quite a bit of time in the military. Uh, he served overseas, uh, saw a lot of what happened. And, you know, came back a, a, a different person. It certainly helped change his viewpoints, um, made him extremely anti-war and also, you know, more liberty minded. And we just kind of talked about that. You know, um, he's very well spoken. This is a great conversation. And um, if, if you or a loved one, you know, has has served or, or, you know, along those lines, you will get a lot out of this conversation. So uh, without any further ado, here is Red. All right. What's up, Red? Not much. How are you doing? Man, I'm doing really good. Um, we followed each other on Twitter for quite some time, man. A lot, I've made a lot of really good friends on that damn app, even though there's a bunch of crazy ass people. You're one of the good ones. That stuck out. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah. No uh, yeah. I, I, I had signed up for Twitter like long before I started using it. And uh, yeah, I think you were amongst like the first 50, maybe even if I remember correctly, that I really started paying attention to. Right on, man. Oh, OG. OG account yeah. over here. I um kind of the same thing, man. I started the account. I never used it, you know, mm -hmm. 
and then uh, Facebook got to be too much, and then I just <laughs> twisted off down into Twitter. Oh yeah, I, I had to ditch Facebook. It it was hard. It was it was like jumping out of a plane. But once once you were out, you know, it was pretty simple after that. Uh, it's almost it, it's, it's almost like one of those things, man. Where you once you make that transition, you're really glad that you don't. I don't know when you got off, but I haven't. I've been off for a while, so I didn't have to see any of the people I really care about listen to their takes on mm-hmm. COVID or the pandemic, yes. which is really nice. That yes, correct, and that would have been bad. Um, well, once I started making my transition uh, to a more liberty-minded philosophy, uh, it got hard to maintain some relationships because when people chime in, I was just like, "Wait, do you understand?" what you're saying like do you understand that the high order effects of what you're saying are you only thinking about now in the moment and uh i actually lost a good friend because of it i haven't i haven't been able to talk to him in almost three years damn man yeah that's a damn shame i mean and there's a lot of misconceptions you know that you 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 mentioned liberty or any of the little slogans we use and it's just gaslighting man or or just wrong stereotypes you know that are are attached to it Oh God. Yeah. There's, there's so many, I mean, of course the, you know, everybody will be a pedo in, in, in Kapistan. Like, no, I don't think you understand how that would work. I think it'd be exactly the opposite. Yeah, it would be exactly the opposite. <laughs> as a matter of fact, <laughs> swift action. And that's yes. one of the things that I also like to, to bring up. So like, and you know, we'll get into but since you mentioned it, like I, when I was in jail, uh, awaiting a wedding trial, I got in a fight. And so they put me up on, uh, they call it ad seg. It's like mm-hmm. the, the, unit, you know, timeout in jail. It's like jail inside of jail, you know? And, <laughs> uh, when they pulled all of us out to go to court, the pod across the hallway from us was the actual pedo pod. And mm. Those guys automatically, the, the second they're, you know, brought into the system, they're put directly up on this pod. And like these guys are smiling and laughing with each other because they know they're about to get out. Like they, mm-hmm. they, there is no fear whatsoever, you know, and, and yep. their eyes are like, man, they are protected. I mean, you want to talk about a protected class. Pedos mm-hmm. are protected in the in the penal system. Well, you know? I guess that, that plays into what we were just saying, because there you've got people with nothing left to lose. Mm-hmm. You know, who who are not above visiting violence on people and mm-hmm. you got to separate them because they will. Nobody likes them. <laughs> yeah, no, not, not a soul and nor should they, you no. know, but um, no, you you had reached out. Uh, you just kind of made a, a, a tweet that, you know, you wanted to talk about your time in service. And I always love hearing about guys who, you know, your stories of when you came into service and as opposed mm-hmm. to when you got out of the service. And I'm just going to let you take it from there, man. What, where, where did you join and what was going on and where are you at now? Um, I was born in Corpus Christi, Texas, born and raised for 18 years. Uh, I was a high school dropout, dropped out my senior year, um, fell in with a, a probably not the best group of people who didn't have my best interests at heart. Um, and then I, once I realized it, it was like, well, okay, I got to do something. And it's it back then it was a pretty small town. I had a limited group of friends and everywhere I wanted to go, they would be. So I looked into the military and I got suckered into the army, um, joined in 97. Uh, but I had no like political philosophy. It didn't come from a, a particularly political household. It wasn't a daily topic of conversation. So I, I just 
I was raised around guns. I just always figured that's just the way it is. You know, I've, I've never heard anybody argue against it because, you know, I lived in South Texas and no one's, no one's running around trying to take our guns away. Right. Um, and so I didn't even meet or understand what a progressive was. So I joined the army. Um, now I'm not progressive obviously, but there's something to be said about hearing the other side. And so slowly as you meet people throughout your, your time in service, you move from station to station, you, you hear different points of view. Sometimes you're offended by them and sometimes they sink in if they're said by the right person who knows what they're talking about. And, uh, you know, you think on that. Um, my biggest uh, sea change happened in 2012. Like the seeds had been planted early, earlier than that. First two deployments, especially Iraq was, you know, I didn't feel quite right about a lot of stuff in Iraq, but I couldn't put my finger on it because I didn't understand why it was wrong because it, politics and you know the ideas and the philosophy behind uh what we would call liberty weren't something i thought about but in 2012 i was introduced to iron rant uh and that that changed everything so she really is uh for many people a a on-ramp even though that there's a lot of anarchists that don't like her uh her personal philosophy is one that should very much be looked into in my opinion, uh, objectivism at a personal level, governmentally, like I can't stand all the big objectivists online because governmentally they're neocons. But, yeah. you know, when it comes to a personal philosophy that changed the way I saw things and that introduced me and let me d down the road to reading who Rothbard was, you know, uh, thank you, Twitter for introducing me to Rothbard, um, then to Mises. And, th and then you just, once you go down the rabbit hole, you just keep reading and you keep going uh, and then you discover YouTube has hours and hours of footage on these subjects that no one watches. So uh, I started going down those rabbit holes. Um, but in 2012, that uh, Atlas Shrugged being given to me by my lieutenant was probably the biggest thing that did it. Um, the thing that was in the back of my mind most of my time was in 2004, we went on a mission. And long, long story short, I wrote a blog about it, if you ever – uh, if anyone ever wants to go read it, but long story short is we got attacked. We got ambushed. Uh, we did what we do. We destroyed them with overwhelming violence and come to find out it wasn't really even bad guys. We were in a part of Afghanistan that Americans hadn't been in yet. So all they thought was we were a, a occupying force. Um, wow. And so they were doing what any of us would actually do in that situation. You see an army rolling through. You're like, Oh, now's the time, you know, yeah. Pull out the AKs. And we dropped a 500-pound bomb on them. And I don't know. It, it didn't sit right with me in the beginning, but I was just like, ah, that's my job. You know, shit happens. Fuck this country. They, they attacked right. us 9-11. I don't care. But it, I never – for a long time, I had problems when I got back, and I didn't know why. And, and it was that moment. Like once I identified that moment, I could start healing. But until I could put my finger on the moment because uh, you kind of block a lot of that stuff out. You don't think about it. Um that began my healing process. And then that was the first seat of doubt. Iraq was the second seat of doubt. I mean, I saw so much fraud, waste, and abuse there. Uh, plus, I mean, just the morals of being there in the first place, notwithstanding. Uh, and then Atlas Shrugged on my third deployment, uh, working with the Afghan National Army, as a matter of fact. So that, that was a very different experience, too. And when you talk with them, you realize that they just want to have a country, too. That's all they wanted. They just they wanted to fight and have a country and you know, determine their own uh, course in history. And how do those guys, history. sorry, I didn't mean to cut no, you off. Ahead. Just out of curiosity, like how, how do those guys uh, jive with y'all? Like were they pretty good? 90% 90, 90 were pretty cool. 
because yeah. they understood that what our purpose are the way they looked at me because uh, I had a select group I trained by myself I was the lead trainer was I was the guy that was going to teach them how to be better artillery in order to defend RC South against the bad guys. And so 90% of them I got along with one of them I had a problem with, uh, you know, but there was never any violence within my, my group. Um, but in 2012, I don't know if you remember, people were getting killed in what we called green on blue attacks all the time, uh, where you'd be working with your host nation force, which is the green force, us being what, what we called militarily the blue force, green on blue, they would attack us. So we'd be out on a mission together and they just turn on us. That's that was happening Whoa. all the time. Yeah. And Whoa. so there's nothing you can do to, about it. You just got to keep your eyes open. So now you're not only looking for enemy combatants, you're looking for the guys that are walking with you on patrol, making sure they're not going to be, you know, turn on you. Jesus Christ. Dude. So that was a problem. But um, I made it through that. I went to the gate and picked them up every day. And every day you go to the gate and you're like, okay, I'm going to die now. And then you get back from the gate and you're alive and you're like, okay, cool. Tomorrow. You know, <laughs> it's just kind of how you think about it. God damn, dude. That's like constant. I can't imagine that level of stress, you know, just. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So I, I didn't. And that's one of those things that once you go through it, you can't put your finger on why you feel that way. You know, um, one of the worst military movies ever made was The Hurt Locker. But there's something about that movie, especially in the end, when you sit in the grocery store, just kind of stare off into space. That is real. Like, and you don't know why you're doing it. You don't understand it. You, you're just like, it's like a dam holding back a bunch of pain. And, you know, you just, it, it takes everything out of you and it zaps you. It's kind of weird. Um, and it happens to everybody who goes there. Even like the, the dudes, what we call fobbits, they never leave the fob. They don't go anywhere. They, they cook the food. They do logistics and stuff like that. Even then when rocket attacks happen, they, they come back just a little bit traumatized. You know, because you, you realize at any moment something can fall, fall from the sky and you're dead. Right. So yeah. even that's in the back of every everybody's mind. Jesus, dude. Yeah, I uh, I have lived a privileged life. Anytime I've been in in, in a not cool situation, it was 100 percent, you know, something that I signed up for. Right. And, you know, man. Wow. So what what would you say? So you you got this book in 2012. Were you deployed mm -hmm. at the time when you were reading? Yeah, I was. This? I was in Afghanistan. Um, you, you have a lot of downtime, believe it or not. It's not. It's not go 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 100 of the time. It, combat has been described by other people smarter than me as you know moments of intensity followed by hours of boredom. Yeah, you know, just mind numbing boredom. And and so learning to deal with that is also another thing. You got to learn how to turn it on and turn it off. Uh, and sometimes people get that proverbial switch stuck on, and that's part of their problem. Uh, but in 2012, I was reading a lot. My lieutenant was reading a lot. I was reading just basic sci-fi crap, uh, you know, no in intelligent works anyway. And he tossed me Iron Rand, and I started reading, and I was like, oh, okay. You know, and of course, you grew up in a capitalist country. You take it for granted. You don't really understand the principles behind it. Uh, they don't really teach you about it in school the way they should. Mm -hmm. And so these ideas – it, it, the great thing about that book is it tells a story and sometimes it's a little in your face, you know, like the, the, the speech he gives, you know, it's like, okay, you're, you're laying it on thick, but the, the, the book itself gives you ideas. Uh, if you've never thought about them before that, you know, change the way you look at things. And like I said, that was the first spiral into what would be called libertarianism. 
how did that affect you uh in you know while on deployment if at all like did that start to change your your mentality towards you know going on no. patrol no 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 I, I mean so all three times i deployed i was i was the same rank uh, i was a staff sergeant and i already had a section to worry about i had men i had to worry about that that was always my you still there yeah i'm here okay um that was always my main priority i didn't really think about other stuff you know you don't really start processing those things in a, at a deeper level until you leave uh but learning about Iron Rand, you know, you start Googling intensely, you know, you're, lo you're looking for more stuff and you, you see all the videos of her and of her talking. And then, you know, maybe there's something from Rothbard that pops up or, you know, an article on on something else that pops up. And, you know, that's how I started clicking around. And, and I was like, oh, there's these other philosophies. There's these other things. Um, I I wrote a blog series on anatomy of the state and I was going to you know, from an objectivist point of view, try to prove how stupid it was. And I cold read it. So I wrote a chat, I wrote a blog per chapter and you could tell from chapter one to chapter six, each one of my blogs, I'm like, oh, okay. Yep. 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 Okay. I guess I'm a Rothbardian now, you know, it, it was. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Okay. Um, and that's, uh, that was it. That was where I, I, I went in um, deep. Uh, I, Believe it or not, another the first time I'd heard about anarcho-capitalism, I didn't get it, though. It was uh, on the Rubin Report, believe it or not. Um, early, early on, when he actually had a, a bunch of people on and he wasn't just some mouthpiece for the uh, gay Republicans. Yeah. He, uh, he had some dude on, I don't remember his name, and he was an anarcho-capitalist and he was talking about his ideas like, okay, that sounds great in theory. Cool. Let everybody move across the border freely and – let everybody do what they want. No government. Okay, dude, that'll never happen. Uh, and when you, the first time you hear it, it, it is absurd, right? Like, it, sure, we'll just all go live our lives peacefully and no one will ever bother us. Okay. Okay. But that's where that went. And um, that led to a, a reckoning with me trying to reconcile my service with how I feel now. You know, because I, I don't look back on – because I touched a lot of lives, a lot of lives touched me. You, you meet a lot of people in the army, and you don't want to look back on that with hate. You know, I look back on it fondly because we're just people. But I don't look back at our purpose fondly, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I had a, um, a friend of mine, Scott, was on talking about his time over there, and um, one of the most jarring things for him was that. You know, he went out of his way to make sure that the civilians were well looked after, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. around his, you know, fob. And um, he talked about, you know, cycling back home. And then when he came back, learning that, you know, that interim, I, I don't know anything military terminology, so forgive me. But mm -hmm. the group of soldiers who were there in the interim had like tuned up this family, you know, and really mm -hmm. screwed them over. Um you know, anywhere from yeah. kicking in their doors, destroying their windows. I mean, pretty much destroying their house and then yeah. screwing them out of getting, you know, paid for it. And uh, yes, did you have anything like that occur? No, no. Um, being an artilleryman in, in Iraq, they shut the guns down and we were patrolling in MRAPs. We uh, we never did anything like that. We just did okay. uh, security for what's called uh, provincial reconstruction teams. Yeah. So they go in there and, and they basically give away a bunch of taxpayer money to people to rebuild the homes that we blew up, you know, a couple of years previously. Gotcha. Um, 
and that's all we did. And, you know, we got in some ambushes and, and firefights and stuff, but it, it, we never messed with civilians all that much. Like I talked with an uh, Iraqi policeman and he was uh, through the translator one time. And I remember, I'll never forget, he, I didn't understand it at the time. He said, I wish Saddam was back because we had everything going for us when he was here. We had power, Damn. you know, because we did. We destroyed their country. Like uh, right. the average person doesn't understand what we did over there. We destroyed all of their infrastructure. And then we thought just tossing money at it would fix it. No, nah, man, they were pissed. <laughs> like even the people that were happy we were showing up in the beginning later were like, wait, this is a raw deal. Right. Yeah, this is not and that's good. why. Yeah. That's why we couldn't defeat. You can't defeat an insurgency when everybody hates you. It, it just, it can't be done. <laughs> man. Talk about a tall order right there. Right. Um, so yeah, sorry to circle back to that. I was just curious on that, on that part. So um, when you, when you got back from your last tour, like, Kind of what did that look like for you? What what did your road to your own recovery consist of? Um, my wife, honestly, uh strong woman, uh never gave up on me. Like by I should probably be living alone in the woods somewhere, honestly. Uh, but she never gave up on me, so that was good. Couldn't have done it without her. Uh had to go to obviously do some therapy. Um and my kids. You know, like you, you got to focus on what you got. Like it, the problem is you're always focused on what's wrong, what sucks, you know, and then you don't stop and think, you know, I'm blessed. Like I own a house. I own some land. I got, you know, enough land to have a farm, some goats and some chickens. You know, I'm blessed. Like there's a lot of people that don't have that. Right. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that's really, that's the secret. You know, you just, you take it one day at a time as you, as you well know. And, uh, you know, you just, you hunt the good stuff. I hate to, that's a phrase that anybody who's gone through resiliency training is going to hate hearing, but it's a good one because it just means quit looking for the bad in every situation. And once you learn to do that normally, like it just becomes normal, look for the good in the situation. It really changes your outlook on a lot of things. Yeah, man. And the, the problem with um, focusing on misery is that hope is seen as a competitor, you know? Yes. Uh, and it's, it's one of those things that where whenever you mire yourself in that kind of black pill mentality, which mm -hmm. man, just going through what you described, uh, it would be hard not to, you know, and, and mm -hmm. it makes me kind of wonder like what, what did this pandemic, I know what this pandemic did to those of us in the recovery community, but mm -hmm. you know, do you have veteran friends who, I mean, this really affected them, like just seeing all this overstepping and overreach. See, I don't know. I almost everybody I talk to on a regular basis um, through non-Facebook means has been OK. Uh, like I said, when I left Facebook, that's how I kept in, basically in touch with everybody from all my units that I knew previously. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, honestly. Um, I got on there once the other day and I had like, you know, nine, the 99 plus mentions in the little drop down right there. And I was like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm good. And I just, <laughs> I closed it. Yeah. That's so a lot. I, I honestly don't know. Um, I, I kind of pulled back cause I got to a point where I was trying to give so much to everyone else. I wasn't given enough to me. wasn't given up to my family. Uh, so that my priority became that. Then I, that's when I bought this house and got us out of the city. Oh yeah, man. Um, so 
when it comes to your political philosophy, the other day, I, which, you know, I think you and I are kind of in the same boat. Like when I was young growing up, I, I was not political at all. Like mm-hmm. I would just say, you know, some dumbass buzzword, <laughs> you know, uh, token mm-hmm. phrase that was being spewed about that sounded slick. But like when I got in my older years, especially, you know, uh, lately in my adult years, this is where I really refined, you know, my, my political means, my political philosophy. Yeah. Um, yes. So where, where do you sit on that currently? I mean, philosophically, right? And I'm probably going to upset anybody who hears this. Philosophically, I'm an ANCAP. Okay. Realistically, I could live a very happy life if we were living in the ideal, you know, utopian minarchist society. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think if any of the philosophical ANCAPs thought about that statement, they'd probably agree. Right? So I understand people voting and trying to, you know, staunch the the blood flow so to speak uh you know so one year you may have to vote republican you know i, I know some that, that go back and forth democrat republican just trying to even things out i get that you know so i ideally yes i'd like secession down to the man you know down to the person uh to the individual uh, but i also understand that since we're forced to live in this system you got to partake in it maybe if you want to change something cuz you can't just wish the the bad stuff away yeah yeah no um I, john phillips I, I have a lot of respect for that guy he's on the uh, lnc last convention and he showed up to oklahoma and i got to talk to him for a minute and i said you know what's your what's your take anarchism or minarchism he says well today i'm a minarchist and tomorrow i can be an anarchist you know right i mean and that's that's kind yes. of the mentality and it, that tracks a, a lot with i think you know where, where you're coming from mm-hmm. either one is going to be a damn sight better than what we have now right right I, actually uh something spike cohen said on the campaign trail when he was running that i found to be smart it was the first time i think i'd heard a mainstream libertarian say it which was why are we even talking about anarchism? Look at the size of our state. We're, we're nowhere near that yet. We'll talk about that when we get rid of some of this other stuff, you know? And I think he was right because yeah. I, I also think of, of it from a practical point of view. Let's say we could erase the state now. We could hit a magic button. We could make it go away right now. There'd be a few thousand people that would celebrate. And then there'd be a whole lot of people that are, would be devastated. You know, not not just because now the government and, the, and therefore technically the country has gone, but because their livelihoods revolve around the federal government because it's gotten so big. You know, what yeah. are they going to do now? What are they? Is that moral just to take it away from them now? Well, it's not moral to give it to them in the first place, but we're not talking about that right now. We're talking about what are they going to do? Yeah. You know. So yeah, you got if 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 it's ever going to happen, it needs to be done piece at a time, the same way it was built. I, I'm not sure that just bringing the whole wall down at once is is the right way, or is it even possible? With your background, especially you know having served so so much time in the military, what does that next step look like in the right direction? Oh, I don't know. Um, localism, really. I. I the federal government's going to do what the federal government does. States are going to do what states do. Hopefully you live in a state that is not intrusive. We both live in a, a, a pretty good state in that regard. I mean, we have a state income tax, but that's probably the worst thing I have to say about Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Um, so localism, really, because no matter what the federal government does, at the end of the day, your school board, 
your mayor, your city council, they have more to say in what happens in your daily life than anything. I, I yeah. realized that when I went to my first local council meeting, right, right as the COVID was kicking off, I was like, oh, hell no. It's like, I know what's about to happen. And I showed up. All these council members talked, the mayor talked, and then he picked up the gavel and said, we don't need to have a conversation about this, do we? And he slammed it down. And wow. that was the enact. They enacted every COVID measure right then. The police started going, knocking on uh, restaurant doors that like immediately afterwards and telling them they had to shut down. Like it was immediate. There was no like announcement in two days. We'll shut down. It was like now, you know, and then they send armed cops to tell restaurant owners to kick people out of their establishment. I was pissed. Yeah. And, and let's, you know, in, in the red state of Oklahoma, those mm -hmm. cops, not just Biden cops, not blue state mm -hmm. cops. Yes. Correct. Red state cops. And yes, because I saw it out here in my neck of the woods too. I mean, it's just how it was. That was a statewide mm -hmm. thing. Um, man, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how you even quantify that, but it was eye opening, I think for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't, it should have been. Well, they're know? forgetting though, you know, because here's part of the problem. When, when George Floyd was killed, he was murdered. Um, a lot of people saw that video and they're like, no bad. But then, you know, there was these conflicting reports and all of a sudden all these people who wanted to lick the boot found a way to lick it again. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so now even when you tell them, look, if the mayor says you got to do this, you know, that cop's not going to argue with the mayor. He's mm -hmm. going to do whatever he has to take to enforce that law or that rule or that edict, that policy. It doesn't matter. They're not your friends. Uh, my boss, his son is a cop in town. And so I've talked to him about it too. Cause his cop pulled me, his son pulled me over and gave me a ticket one time. And uh, he kept asking me, <laughs> he kept asking me questions. And uh, I don't know if I should say anymore. Cause I screw it. I already, I started. He kept asking me questions. He said, where do you work? And I said, uh, you know, I work at such and such. He's like, okay, where? I was like here and in this building at this place. He's like, okay, but what's the address? Like, what do you do? I was like, I work for your father. <laughs> because I, I didn't he didn't there was no reason for him to be asking me these questions and i didn't right. want to I, I didn't want to try to bring up his father as a way to get out of the ticket i was just going to take my damn ticket and, and go about my very way and he right. pissed me off you know and then immediately as soon as he left i called him i was like hey uh i might have been a bit a bit of a smart ass to your son you're probably going to hear about it but it, even then what people don't understand is if if you realize that it is not your job to comply, it is their job to serve. If it's working the way it's supposed to work, that is. We know that that's not the way it is. Then you don't have to answer those questions. But cops use their their ability and their respect my authority attitude to do whatever they want. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he was just trying to figure out if there was some other reason that he could uh, find a pretense to do something. You know, like, why are you driving such a nice truck if you don't have a good job? You know? Mm -hmm. Uh, and it just ticked me off and it, there was no reason. And my kids were in the car too. And they were start. they were like, dad, chill out, dad, stop, dad, stop. But I, ugh, I hate it. Cause I was yeah, the same way in the military. That's one of those things, man. Like they do have that position and people are like, well, a cop can't do that. Cop can damn well do anything. They so choose mm -hmm. who's going to stop oh, them. No one's going to stop them. <laughs> Even when they get caught, someone's going to hand wave it away and say, Yes. Yeah, but he was resisting, so the cop had to hit him 18 times in the head with a baton, and you know, yeah, man, no. Yeah, and but that's the, the crazy that's thing the... is, we don't even do that downrange. We don't treat people like that downrange. 
if, so, if, we, if, if we did that to – I've said this to other cop lovers before, and they don't believe me. If I treated an Afghan national the way cops treat Americans, I would have gone to a court martial. Wow. Wow. How did they, and just out of curiosity, like how did they keep track of, of your interactions? Like were they polling the populace or like what? Did no, they no, like? no, no, no. So there's no cameras with us, right? Nor do should we have any that there's just too much going on. Um, but it only takes one person. And, and we have, there is an extensive whistleblower process. Like it, it's, it's not hard to do. You go, everybody knows who you go talk to for such and such situation. If one of them said something and other people started to write sworn statements saying it happened, you know, then there would be an investigation. Then they would go talk to the people involved in the populace and try to find them uh, and find out what happened. You know, the, the people, there's this misconception. Here's one of the misconceptions. We can just kill civilians with no recourse whatsoever the average ground soldier that is i'm not talking about the drone program the average ground soldier can go just do whatever they want no that is not true um look up staff sergeant robert bales i think it was bales yeah he was in my brigade uh he was a war criminal it happened while i was there in 2012. he went crazy walked off the fob walked into a village and started marking people whoa yeah now i've heard rumors that there was an initial attempt to cover up uh but I don't believe that because I think they understood once they got the gravity of the situation, there was no covering it up. It, it, there was no way to cover that up. Like right. the Afghans put it out to the the media. The media got a hold of it before it was ever even announced by our media. It was being announced by other media with pictures, you know. And he went in there and killed women and everybody. Uh, now he's and he's going to be in jail the rest of his life, as it should be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Uh, there, there's an extensive way to get people. I mean, it, there's even people I think in the heat of combat probably got a raw deal, but they're still in jail because they take it so seriously. Um, and I know that's odd to say, but you know, someone's shooting at you and you shoot back and they're hiding in somebody's house, you know, and a straight bullet goes in there and kills the other person. Uh, it, it's horrible, but I'm not an American cop policing Americans. You know, I was just trying to not be shot and get the right. hell out of there. We also don't go into those buildings. Well, in the beginning we did, like during the invasion, right? But when that happens, you know, we just drop a bomb anyway. Everybody in that building is going to die. So it doesn't, it, you know, it, that's one of the horrors of war people don't understand. But we don't just get to go around killing civilians for no reason. It, it just doesn't happen. There would be an investigation. Uh, I mean, it happened in Vietnam too. In Vietnam, whenever those bad things happen, someone would whistleblow and they, someone would get in trouble and they'd go to jail. See. And, and, you know, just to compare that to the police today, you know, we see body cameras everywhere, mm -hmm. all these. And it's my opinion that we just now have a 4K view of exactly how untouchable American police are. Yes. That's really the only thing it's done, you know, yes. uh, save a few token cases. But, I mean, Daniel Shaver, you know, I mean, just, oh. my God, <sighs> you know. That video is in, enraging. Um, yeah. Mm. <laughs> what, what else is there to say that about that, that hasn't been said already? Mm -hmm. I mean, you just you see a dude murder a guy and get away with it because he was found not, gu not guilty. So, I mean. And got the uh, nice little check pension. The pension on the ta ta taxpayer pension. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it, we live in a clown world. Mm -hmm. um, now, just to specify what I was talking about earlier, I'm not saying that what we were doing in Iraq was good. What I'm saying is 
there was a lot of people there that sympathized and would allow insurgents into their home because that's their culture. It's actually a cultural uh, thing. In, in Afghanistan, it's called Pashtun Wali. I'm not sure what the, the doctrine is called uh, in, in general. But once they let you in their house, you, they're family. You have to protect them like family. So they would let these insurgents in. They would fire their mortars at us from in the house, uh, thinking that we would not do anything. And in the beginning, we didn't. You know, but then we told them quit doing that. Uh, so that's that's another thing. Like you hear about building destroyed in Iraq. That's what it was. Like a mortar men would come up in the backyard of some family home using the, you know because they know they can't refuse them, and they start shooting mortars, and then they'd get the whole damn building blown up. Jesus Christ! Yeah, Jesus. It's like a whole damn family's, you know, yeah. because somebody played them. Yeah, it, wow. it, and we shouldn't have – so to clarify, we shouldn't have been there in the first place. Like that should have right. never happened. Like it shouldn't have ever happened. Uh, but if you're shooting at police, the police have a right to shoot back too, right? Like I, I'm not one of these guys that's like the – you know, police shouldn't have weapons. No, that's not true. They should just quit using them so goddamn much. Right. You know, that's all. Yeah. No, and I'm, I'm right there with you. As, as much as I have – and undying loathing for modern day police officers. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of these shoots that I'm like, okay, if I was getting shot at, yeah, I would shoot back right. too. Like I don't right. expect I, them to just get killed, you know? Yes. Nor should you that. I mean, if we're going to subscribe to natural law, then we have to apply it unilaterally, yes. right? Like if, some, mm -hmm. if someone's trying to kill a cop, a cop can defend himself. You know, I got that, you know, but that doesn't apply in someone's home. If you kick in no. someone's fucking door, <laughs> yeah. well, you, you take the lead. Just, right, you know, take it. Especially if it's the wrong house, by the way. I don't know if you saw that. I don't know, what was that? Houston here recently. The, the cops kick in the apartment door and the guy's laying on the couch. It's the wrong yes. effing house, man. No, it, no, it turned out to be the right house. turned out to be the wrong person. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it, they had the right address. It just wasn't the right person. Gotcha. So it's even worse than that. They kicked down some innocent dude's door, you know, yeah. and... But they were at the right place, so of course, because they they managed to read a, a an address correctly for once, you know, nobody's going to get in trouble. Yeah, qualified immunity. Yeah. And how 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 great is it that that has gone away now too? That whole conversation has gone. Uh, I just recently saw a campaign for OKC's mayor David Holt, and I distinctly remember the summer BLM protests mm -hmm. and his position on defunding the police. Like he was right there. And um, he's got the the Fraternal Order of Police Union is actually shilling for him on his campaign ad, which is just like, man, you got, I mean, that's a mutually, you know, two faced deal right there. But um, none, none of the people who said defund the police understand or meant it at all. Fair, fair they, point. They, they just didn't, you know, should the police have dollars reallocated? Sure. Should you let progressives write your your buzzwords? No. No. You know, should we take all the MRAPs and all the tanks and all the machine guns that the United States Army has given to the local police, take them all back? Yes. Yes, we should. Yeah. They don't need that. They don't need that. They do need training. They need time off. Because, um, I, I mean, from my understanding, they work those dudes pretty hard, like 10, 12-hour shifts a day, you know, like four or five days a week. I, I, I don't know about that. I, I could be wrong, but I, I know they work the shit out of those guys. And I can imagine being frustrated. I remember what it was like being downrange, being frustrated. You know, you're like, fuck, you quit looking at them as people. Sometimes you're like, they just want to kill me, you know? So I, yeah. I get it. 
And so everybody they pull over, they're like, okay, this, this guy is a bad guy until proven otherwise. And, and it, that's not the hallmark of a free society. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not. And if they can't do that, um, then they should, they should quit their job. I mean, read Rise of the Warrior Cop. You know, Rise of the Warrior Cop is an outstanding book that explains exactly what the problem is with these guys coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq joining the police force using the same tactics they use downrange, looking at the citizens the same way they looked at the people downrange. They equate them as the same, you know, whether it's a, a young Afghan boy or, or a young American boy in the inner city, they, they look at them the same way, you know. And then one of the first things you do downrange, which is despicable, but you learn to do it anyway, is you dehumanize the people because you may have to kill them. So you it's dehumanize a, them. Well, coping mechanism right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and in a way, that's what the police do too. And being a veteran, I can see it. So when I see these incidents and I read about them and I read about the cops history and I'm like, okay, I know exactly what's going on here. And this guy should not be doing this job at all. See, I saw him in uh county, in county jail. Um, it was always the worst ones that were in there in Oklahoma County jail where the, uh, they had a gold shield embroidered on their, on their uniform. And that, that meant they were a street deputy. And uh, they were the biggest douchebags, man. I mean, and all of them had, you know, served overseas. Mm-hmm. And they all had that mentality. Like, I am here yep. to F you up, you know, yep. like, <laughs> give me a reason. And they will. And so one of the things I hear conservatives say a lot is statistically, you know, you've got an average of X number of stops a day. And so therefore the vast majority of them are peaceful. Maybe that's true. But that percentage you just gave me is there's no way it can be accurate because not every interaction is televised or filmed or uh, known about or talked about. No no one gets in trouble. No one reports it. You know, if a cop can beat somebody ass and said, if you say anything, I'm going to come back and beat your ass again. You know, it's going to happen and there's no no one's ever going to know about it. You know, cops walk into I saw a cop getting at you with someone one time because the guy expected him to pay for his coffee. Damn. Because they get this Damn. sense of entitlement, you know, because there's somebody, these people are like, oh, coffee's free to, you know, c- to police. And they just think that's the way it should be everywhere. Right. You know, so right. The, the sense of entitlement is real. I mean, it's real. Now, did you, um, when you came home, did you ever consider or lean towards look at being a police officer here? No. <laughs> Ironically, my initial job prospect was going to be border patrol because um, I hadn't, I have a specialization that would have played and worked well into border patrol. And um, I went away from it. Thankfully, I'm so happy I did and went into the contracting world. Uh, But please know, like by then I already knew what was going on. Like I knew what was going on. You were red-pilled at that point. You were like, yeah. nah. Yeah. Yeah, there, there was no way I was going to put that uniform on and police my fellow citizens. And, and I can't respect anyone who does. It's a bold statement right there, bud. I like it. Um, now, what about your, your veteran friends that you still talk to? Have you been able to red-pill them? Some of them already were. Um, some of them were big time MAGA guys. I had one Q friend that he's one of the reasons I had to quit Facebook because I just could not quit arguing with him. Um, <laughs> Jim you know, Carrey's. You can only Biden. say show. Yeah, you can only say show me, show me the proof so many times, you know. Yeah. And and then it, I'm like, okay, dude, I believe you. Show me the proof, 
right? Okay, I, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Quit linking me to these these news stories that look like they made that shit up. You know, show <laughs> yeah. me the proof. Um, yeah, and and that was rough. Um, but you know, it, I don't know if I could say I've particularly red pilled anybody on from my veteran friends community. I have at work. I have at work. Um, I still work around green suitors. Uh, so I've, I've sent more than a few doubting their existence and purpose, which, you know, kind of sucks for them, but it'll pay off in the long run. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It will. Um, how is that? What does that look like? Like what's, what's your go-to? Like do you toss them a book? Do you throw them a podcast? No. Um, just talking. Really, I don't. I don't like to to throw stuff like, "Hey, read this or watch this," because they're not. No one's going to do that. Nobody has time. Right. You, while you've got their attention, you know, you you need to be talking about it while you've got their attention and let that stuff sink in. And and you got to do it in bite sized chunks. You cannot just dump, you know, anatomy of the state on somebody and be like, "So if the government are the Jews and the Jews are the government, then the Jews committed suicide." You know, no one gets that statement, and you know, uh, w- without a build up to that statement. Right. Um, so it's, it's tidbits here, tidbits there, you know, George Floyd helped, uh, the riots helped a lot. You know, I was like, Hey, look, the government's letting them do it. You know, I, yeah, we should be against the police violence, but the police are just watching these people burn everything down now. And they're not doing anything about it when they're, this is what they're actually supposed to be doing. Yeah. You know, so you, you show them those little tidbits and then you leave it alone. Talk about something else next day. You know, you, you, you find that, that little in you talk about it, you know? Um, I have the opportunity to talk to 30 new faces joining the army every seven weeks. And towards the end of class, when things slow down and they've taken most of their tests and you can start talking to them like people again, uh, I, I will often let them ask questions. Sometimes they'll ask financial questions. I'm like, okay, that's a good question. You know, because an, on, for a separate reason, no one gives financial literacy to the new trainees. So there's a trope about privates always getting 30% interest loans and buying a new Mustang as soon as they graduate AIT. It's yeah. real. That, like, that's, that's, a, that's a true thing that actually happens. And can, no one ever talks to them about why that's a bad idea. They just, by the time they've done it, you're like, no, why did you do that? But it's too late. It's done. Yeah, um, it's a wrap. So I use those moments to break in small things too. All right. I'm like, hey, so what is money? Right. Uh, you know, what is a store of value? What should you invest in? Do you want to invest in soft money or hard money? Here's the difference. You, you can find ways without getting political to plant seeds, you know? Yeah. And that's what I do. I like that, man. I mean, you're you're in a prime position, you know, especially to utilize that tactic. I like that a lot, man. Um, overall, you know, let's let's just look at veterans. What do you think? And, and something that I see in the, in the Liberty community, it's either disgruntled veterans already, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or you have this other, and I, I obviously you can't paint the whole movement in a broad brush, but you also have this other side who was like, you know, F the military and the troops mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. to the wire. Like how do we bridge that gap? How do, how, how do we, especially those of us who never served, Mm-hmm. approach this, you know, have these well, conversations. I don't know. Like I was talking with that guy on Twitter the other day, which is what spurned, uh, spawned my tweet that you picked up on. 
you know, and he's under the impression that everybody joins the army. Uh, well, there was two people I was talking with. One said, you know, if they join the army, they understand that they may have to kill and therefore they're fuck up. Right. And then another was like, they only join the army to kill. Well, I, I think I finally pissed that guy off enough to where he blocked me trying to just hit him with the facts. This other guy's statement is a little bit more, more nuanced because it's technically correct. Like we all join may not be our purpose for joining, but we all do join with the understanding that, you know, there's a high, a, a certain percentage based on my job that I may end up having to kill somebody. That does not make them a bad person because there's a certain things that I have here in civilian life that I would be perfectly acceptable killing somebody over. You break into my house and threaten my family, I'm going to kill you. And I'm, I'm willing to accept that, that responsibility onto myself. Right. Um, so I, I think it's a disingenuous way to look at, soldiers saying you know they, they know there's a possibility they'll have to kill because you don't understand that they are not red-pilled those soldiers think they are serving a purpose greater than themselves because that's what we were all taught as young uh kids to be patriotic and love our country and and a lot of people when they join the army they really do do it for the most what they consider sincere of of reasons uh and i and i know because i did it you know <laughs> when i joined i was you know Yay, Captain America! You know, I I loved everything about America. Um, now, that's not, don't take that to say that I hate everything about America. We're still pretty damn fortunate, but um, you know, it, it's it's complicated. It's 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 complicated. But they don't join for that purpose. They do join with the understanding that they could have to do it. So what? I could have to do it going to the grocery store tomorrow because I carry. You know, anyone who carries could end up having to to do that. I mean, are you just let somebody kill you when you have access to a gun? No. No, no. exactly. So it, it, I, I think it's a dis disingenuous way of looking at it. There are people within certain communities that have a higher level of knowledge, uh, training, like officers, for example. Officers know what they're doing. They know why they're doing it. They understand the implications. Um, for four years prior to actually going active duty in the Army, they're going to college to learn how to be an officer uh, through, like, either uh, – um, the West Point, uh, you know, the Virginia Military Institute, um, ROTC, these other options. Um, so I, I judge them a little differently. But your average enlisted person that joins, joins because they want they don't want to go into debt for college. They'll do right. four years and, and they'll get college money, you know. And then they realize, hey, this is pretty cool. I'm good at it. It's very regimented. You know, I've definitely got a paycheck on the first and 15th of every month. Uh, I can go to college for free while I'm in. A lot of people don't know about that that we tax our tax dollars pay for that. So they they can get their degree while they're in, you know, go into night school and then they'll get out and still have the GI bill and then go get higher education. So a lot of people stay in longer than their initial enlistment to finish their degree while they're in. Um, I'm not going to hold that against them. I mean, should the government be doing it? No, of course not, but they are. And if somebody's yeah. taking advantage of it, you know, why, why am I going to think less of them? I don't right. Know. But I'm biased, obviously. Yeah, I mean, the the incentives that are that are dangled out there, and you mm -hmm. know, and I do judges still give the option for people who got jammed up on a criminal conviction to go and on occasion, on occasion. So, yes. So that's another part of it, you know. Like that's that's another. I mean, I I definitely can't fault somebody wanting to join the military as opposed to get going to prison, you know. I I knew a guy in my first when I was a young private. I knew a guy. He, he joined for that reason. I think he stole like a backhoe back home or something and got caught, you know, just being drunk and driving a backhoe around a field that wasn't his. Uh, 
and the judge was like, all right, dipshit, join the army. <laughs> so <laughs> he did. Uh, four years later, and this is after I had already PCS'd, I heard about it after the fact, he was driving down the road drunk with a, a new guy in the vehicle. The guy had his head out the window because they were just driving around Louisiana being stupid. And he lost control of the vehicle and decapitated the, the guy on the on a tree. Shit. So those aren't the soldiers we need in the army. You know, once again, we shouldn't have an army. You know, yes, I understand the ideological purity that, you know, but if we have one, we should be selective. We should not be letting the criminals in. Uh, that doesn't mean criminals are bad people. Obviously, it just means that when you're 18 years old, if you've already made certain decisions. And you need to go break those bad habits because believe it or not, the army doesn't actually do anything for you. The army gives you tools to do something for yourself. That's what it does. People don't understand. They think that some drill sergeant is going to yell in your face and transform you into this magical human being that's capable of, of all these feats, you know, of bravery. That's not true. You know, they know how to unlock certain things and allow you to do it yourself. Yeah. That's it. So if you don't already have a bit of the, the goodness in you, uh, and you haven't dedicated yourself to that uh, yourself to that. I, I'm not sure. With only a couple of times, you know, there's always exceptions to the rule, but I think that it should be way more selective. We should shrink the army. We should be more selective about who we take in. Um, raise the the test scores necessary because you have to take a test to join the army. It's called an ASVAB. You know, in in my uh, old MOS, they dropped the score requirements like significantly. Um, I want to say they did it during the surge because they needed people uh, and they never brought them back up. So, mm. I mean, we've got people in there that can't do basic math sometimes. So here I am spending my time teaching them how to, how do you, you know, do stuff that they should already know how to do. It's rough, man. And then yeah, it's our job to make sure they pass. Jesus Christ, man. So like, were you deployed at the time that you saw this influx of, of people coming in? No. Uh, no? Okay. They, they didn't work with me. Um, they went to a lot of units to replace people that were getting hurt and then they got filtered out that way. So we would get a new guy between deployments and then we'd know by the time we deployed, if he was going to work or not, you know, what gotcha. we would do with him. Uh, but never while we were there. It's not like that. So it's not like world war two where you're there for four or five years. You're not there for the duration of the war. So you're not getting people cycle into your unit while you're in country that often. Okay. You go back, you've got a year uh, of training, uh, reset of your equipment, fix everything that gets broken in the desert, and then you go back. Uh, in that year, you get your new people, and, and so you've trained them, you know them, you know, there should be trust developed by then. Uh, so it's not like Vietnam where you were getting draftees just showing up like, okay, you're in that platoon, you're in that platoon, and then you don't know this guy. It wasn't like that. Okay, that's good. That That is yeah. a good thing. That would be a fucking nightmare, man. Oh, I mean, it happens. Like a new guy will PCS in like the first month of a unit's deployment. Within the first three months, they'll send people. Like if you show up, uh, they've got planes flying out for the first three months. But it's probably either a dude that uh, he's already seasoned and he just changed duty stations, you know, so he's good to go, you know, or they'll they'll get somebody in and they'll put them on the, the shitty details so they don't ever go out the wire. But for the most part, yeah, there's no cycling like on MASH or anything like that. Where you like show new people shows up. Ha ha, I'm your commander now. It doesn't work like that. Right. Okay, that's good. That is a good thing. 
Well, man, um, this has been a really uh, great conversation. You definitely have a knack for uh, having these types of discussions. Um, before we before we cut on out of here, what what message would you like to give to the broader liberty community about you know the, our our next pathway forward? Uh, quit living in in Kapistan in your head, man. Like we don't live there. We don't. You know, you can be as ideologically pure as you want. It doesn't solve any problems here and now. And people want problems solved. They don't want to hear about how they should have reacted in the situation. They want their problems solved. So it is our job to explain to them that the government doing less is better for them. And it solves mm -hmm. the problems that the government already created. Right. The right. 90% of your problems the government created. More government isn't going to fix that problem. Quit living in campus in your head because people don't want to hear well, let's just abolish the government. No. The Dave Smith approach, I think, is the right approach, right? I, I don't know what people – I know a lot of people that that's very controversial. But he does a good job of separating where he thinks we should be with where we are. Where we are is here. Here's the steps we can take for meaningful change here and now. Here's where we want to be. These steps could lead us to where we want to be. That's what we need to think about, in my opinion. I agree. That's solid. So, of course, Dave is phenomenal. I mean, he, he is he is great about taking that message to the broader audience. Uh, mm -hmm. If we could just get the internal conflict set aside for a minute. Right. Oh, God. Good Lord. Damn. Yeah. It's horrible. All right, man. Well, uh, thanks a lot for hanging out. And uh, anytime you want to come back on, buddy, you always got an open invite. Okay, man. I appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you. All right, there you go. Thanks a lot, Red, for coming on, buddy. Uh, you did a great job. That was a great conversation. And I, and I thoroughly believe that we really need to play to each other's strengths. You know, where I stand out with criminal justice reform and drug policy, you know, people like Red stand out on, on discussing the horrors of what happens whenever we go to war for profits. You know, what happens to people, not only abroad, but what we're doing to our own brothers and sisters here at home that we're sending overseas to to fight these battles. Um, this is a this is a conversation that was sobering, to say the least, but it, they're, they're necessary to have. And so uh, thanks a lot, Red, for having the courage to come on and and have that discussion. And um, that's going to do it for this week, guys. Thanks a lot for tuning in. Sure do love you guys out there. Hope that um, this next week treats you well. And I figured that a great song to accompany with this episode would be Against Me. Uh, this song is called From Her Lips to God's Ears. And it's it's about the war in Iraq, man. Uh, it's just a great punk song. I hope you guys enjoy it. So without any further ado, here is Against Me.
Godfather.